I'm Phil DeLuca. I'm Shiva Bud. <laughs> <laughs> I was drinking, Phil. <laughs> and we are Commanderin. Thanks for listening, everybody. We put a spotlight on community issues, but never, ever talk about three banned topics. At least not on the air, man. Religion, politics, and Hearthstone. Now, people wonder how you can help the show. What we suggest is you share this podcast with your friends, right? You tell your friends about us, review us, give us positive reviews so that we can get in front of more people. Or you can visit us on YouTube, where if you comment, rate, and subscribe, that helps a lot. And play our videos to the end, because uh, YouTube cares when a video is completed. If you want to help us out materially, you can always visit patreon.com slash commanderandmtg, or commanderandmtg.com slash donations, or go to our GoFundMe and search for the Commander in Podcast and use the one with the C logo. It helps us keep the lights on in Podcastia. Mm-hmm. That was what you said last time. Hey, man, it worked. Yeah. Before we introduce our special guest this week, very special guest, a 10-timer, believe it or not. Wow, that's more than me. <laughs> <laughs> Each week, we like to hear from our sponsors, and that means we call out three of our Patroni. This week, those Patroni are Dan Roach, not to be confused with Dana Roach, Timothy Harms, and Kobe M. Green. Thank you, folks. We do appreciate your donations, and really, we wouldn't be doing this without your continued donations. So, remember, new patrons can get in on a funny name game. You have 140 characters between two names to play with, so whatever you put as your name, we're going to read it out loud. If it's not family-friendly, we'll, uh, we'll bleep it. We have a wonderful show lined up for you. We are talking about the 75% theory. We actually call it an ethos. Started by one Jason Alt just before Valentine's Day in 2014. It was a Valentine's Day gift to the world, and just like a Valentine's Day gift, uh, went unappreciated. <laughs> Obviously, listeners, we have brought Jason Alt back. Those of you who've been listening for a while know that uh, he was our first professional guest, our first uh, podcast guest. We actually had spoken to a listener before him, but he was on episode four, episode five, episode 28, 30, 50, 51, 82, 83, and 144. I'm like Punisher appearances in Spider-Man. Let's, let's that. <laughs> this is like the part in the beginning of the comic book, which got like the 12 inch tall footnote of like, see also yeah. issues <laughs> with the asterisk. Welcome back. True believers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, Jason, you are an MTG Finance guru. If somebody searches for hashtag MTG Finance, they might find your name associated with that. And a lot of folks don't realize this unless they've met you at, like, GP Vegas or something. But you are an EDH slash commander expert. I mean, maybe they've read my series that I've been writing for five years on Cool Stuff, Inc., or, you know, listen to anything you've ever said anywhere. <laughs> well, hey, man, not not everybody has listened to anything I've ever said anywhere. So I am a 10-timer on this podcast, but there could be some people out there who are 
tuning in to hear me for the very first time on Commander. And so thank you for listening. And yes, I decided one day that I was an EDH person. And now look at me. I know some people <laughs> on the Commander Advisory Group personally. You have spoken to them. Man, I know a few of them too. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> but really, the thing is, though, we brought you on, Jason, because of the fact that uh, the 75% theory is one of kind of like the fundamental ideas of EDH. Now, EDH hadn't had a lot of real like theory crafting articles done over the years, kind of the way that in limited resources, they've got the quadrant theory or whatever. And I feel like 75% is one of those like foundational ideas of EDH that's just become so widespread and useful that it's good for every once in a while to kind of touch base on that again so that listeners or newcomers to the format can kind of understand what it means when you're uh, when you're actually trying to make a deck optimal but not like busted. It's it's more like you're optimizing for an unknown playgroup, which was sort of my original intent, and that's sort of what I'm aiming for. Like uh, a lot of the criticism I get um, from like competitive players is like, well, you couldn't beat my hermit druid deck that wins on turn two. Well, cool. If you're going to sit down with like an unknown group of people with a competitive EDH deck and you're going to win on turn two, the rest of us are going to say, cool. Do you mind if we play to see who gets second place? Thanks for doing that yeah, in front of us. So, <laughs> uh, so like, I feel like the decks that people sit down with, with people they don't know, are um, going to be just like a certain kind of build. And uh, I think that a 75% deck, if built correctly, can aim for a sweet spot where you can beat the best deck at the table without pub stomping the worst deck at the table. And uh, it's harder to build than it sounds. Well, because the, your natural instinct is to want to play the best possible card, right? I think your idea of playing with an unknown group is like exactly kind of the thing you should be looking for. Because too often you go to a GP or something and somebody just brings out their like infinite Narset deck or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, you won, but there's nothing on the line. There's no stakes on the table. So... Bye. <laughs> and it's no it's no fun to be that guy. And you like you just didn't know. You're like, oh I busted out Maelstrom Wander and I played three mana rocks on turn one and Maelstrom on turn two. And everyone else like, I'm playing the precons. <laughs> yeah, right. So most people don't want to be that person either. They don't want to accidentally the whole table. So I think having a deck that when you go to a GP isn't gonna sit in your bag. Because I had decks that just sat in my bag when I would go to a, a GP and play because I didn't know what people were playing and you you don't typically play two or three games with the same group that you meet you just sort of sit down for a game and then you know you'll go your separate ways right and i i wanted to not have my deck sit in my bag so i was building to sort of aim for just like being appropriate for an unknown group and um i think if you limit yourself in other ways you can still play the best cards you can think of within like restrictions you set for yourself but for the most part I found the kind of classes of cards I wanted to avoid and the kind of situations I wanted to avoid. And I think um, the article I wrote 10 months after the initial one that everyone calls the article. And I was like, I wrote 250 articles. I don't like hearing people say I read the <laughs> article on 75 percent. I'm like, you didn't read 75 percent of the articles. You didn't even read one percent. So <laughs> the title of that one is um, how to play commander with my group. Eight, right? eight simple rules for uh playing in my commander group or something like that. I looked up the article last night and I don't even remember. Google eight simple rules EDH and that'll be what pops up. If you read one article, have it be that one because that was when I had written about it for about 10 months. 
and ironed out a few things and people had sent me their decks and I've sort of been like, oh, okay, this is kind of not what I'm looking for because of this. And I would change that. And I, I sort of had almost a year of experience under my belt. And if you read one article, that would be the one I would read. I'm sure you guys will put it in the show notes. Yeah. But the, the one that's called Billing a 75% Commander Deck, if I could scour that from the internet, uh, I would. Would you really? Yeah, because like I'm glad I wrote it, but I wish people would stop reading it and thinking, okay, I read the article. Because like it's, it's a five years and counting still developing ethos. It's like, you know, it's, it's hard to distill it down into one article, let alone literally the first time I even put my thoughts out there. It was, right. you know, it was, I, I knew nothing because I hadn't even really developed it yet. So, well, I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? Yeah. Well, I'm glad people are searching out what 75% EDH is because, because they hear somebody at the shop and they're like, what does it mean? Instead of saying, I think it means you win 75% of your games, they actually have the curiosity to go look up what I meant about it. It's it, It's been a crazy ride. It's gotten a lot of people say, hey, I was always building this way, but I there was no name for it. And you picked a bad name. And I was like, yeah, maybe I picked a bad name. But also, did I? Because I think any name you pick for it, people could find a way to willfully or otherwise misconstrue it. So... Mm. I think really any name I could have given it, even if it would have been a better one, there's still room for people to be like, I think it means this because people love to do stuff like that. Well, I mean, the sign of a good name is the fact that people remember it and people keep using it and referring to it. The last time we had uh, Sheldon Menry on, he called you out specifically. He feels that the 75% kind of ethos is like the heart of what EDH means as a casual format. And I was like, wow, that's yeah, that's a hell of a thing to say. Rather than talking about it, why don't you explain a little bit to the listener, what you think 75% means? Like, what is a 75% deck? Well, I think I think I know what it isn't. Hmm. And it takes a little longer to figure out what something is by figuring out what it isn't. And that's kind of why I've, I've been running about it five years and I still don't feel like I fully know <laughs> exactly what which cards, which decks, etc. I can't, someone can send me a hundred card list and be like, ah, and I'm like, yeah, because <laughs> I don't kind of say these 40 cards make it 75%. I kind of say this, these three cards kind of don't, you know? Sure. Uh, I have a few, like a few of the, the, the guidelines. I, I use the word rules cause I was making a pun on that stupid TV show. And I was like, well, I use the word rule and I don't even like the word rule. So it feels like. Anything that can be attacked with a semantic argument will, unfortunately. So it's like, well, you said they, they were rules. They're not. They're guidelines. It's EDH. It's casual. <laughs> they're just sort of things to keep in mind. I kind of don't like face down tutors. And there are, there are situations where you want them. But for the most part, if you can use a face up tutor or just draw a bunch of cards, I think that's a little bit better. Yeah. What do you mean face down versus face up? Uh, demonic tutor versus gamble or uh, worldly tutor. So anything that's just you, they you, they don't see the card. And that was something both Sheldon and Benny Smith had said. They were cutting their face down tutors. I'd done a lot of reading of their stuff, you know, because they've been doing yeah. it for years longer than me. And I was sort of like, yeah, that's something I really feel because like people know how to deal with a worldly tutor, but like demonic, it sort of makes everybody nervous. That is true. And then I sort of morphed that into is like, you should run like a lot of card draw or tutor, but not both. Because I think... If you were aiming to win about one out of every X games where X is the number of people in the pod, you know, so you, mm. you want to have like a 25% chance of winning against three unknown people. A little bit of variance goes a long way, but I don't want the kind of variance where it's like draw goad for four turns because I didn't hit my third land drop. 
You don't want your deck to be bad. You just want to not have the cards you need every time. Right. So I feel like if you're going to draw a lot of cards, maybe don't run tutors also. You know, so stuff like that, like your Ristic study is going to spit out your win condition roughly a quarter of the time. Sure. That makes sense because otherwise it feels a little bit like you're win mooring. You know, it's like, okay, I get it. You drew like 600 cards and then you're going to tutor because yeah. you, couldn't, you couldn't find it in that like block <laughs> of cards you just got. Like, come on. No, I paid 23 with Necropotence just to get my uh, Wear of Invention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's like cool so game two like uh, so i like it when people can do something but not anything so rather than armageddon maybe you play kismet stuff like that there's a card i haven't thought about in a million years kismet makes their stuff come into play tap stuff like that when you're blowing up everybody's land and then they're just like cool the game took an extra hour like what did you really do like i I don't like Armageddon just because I feel like it just makes games take longer. Exactly. If you Armageddon and you have the win on board and then no one can stop you because they don't have mana, cool. But if you Armageddon, then you're like, Meh, I still got my mana rocks and everyone's top decking like punch, <laughs> punch yourself in the face. That's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. So many people, so many people misuse Armageddon. Uh, I've run a tournament at a uh, local convention like three times a year. And you still see people on turn four, Armageddon. And it's like, why did you do that? Why was there? And they have nothing on board. They just drew an Armageddon and were like, hey, I've got four mana, pow. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I hate Armageddon, but I hate even more the Elspeth ultimate for uh, Knight Errand or whatever. That makes all your stuff indestructible. Because then it's just like one-sided Armageddon. And I'm like, okay, well, scoop. Thanks. That was fun. <laughs> See, I don't hate cards that make the game end. And yeah. some people kind of think that's a little bit incongruous. But I'm like, look, man, if if Insurrection wins the game, then that game was at a miserable point anyway. Right. And if you're not tutoring for Insurrection, you're going to get it like one fourth of the games you play anyway. So I don't have a problem <laughs> with stuff like that. Um, so I think it's better to like punish people for doing things rather than prevent them from doing anything at all. Armageddon's miserable, and some people think like stuff like dire undercurrents or oh, what's the thing where you you either pay five life or discard a card every time you play a spell. I don't know card names. Uh, <laughs> I'm just a writer. I don't know words. <laughs> stuff like that. Like it's like, well, I gotta I gotta pay life or discard because I played a spell. Stuff like that. Like if you're gonna ding them every time they do something, I think that's better than like preventing them from doing anything. So if you set your deck up to play that way slow people down and those types of cards tend to bring the whole table in line they tend to punish the person who's farthest ahead the most mm. which is what you want yeah but i also think that the game should end so your deck should have a way to win and it should have more than one way to win i don't like kind of dirtle decks that are like oh i'm group hug but i don't have a win condition i i think you should have a way to win the game those are miserable <laughs> and if that's an insurrection or something like that i'm i'm fine with that so it's really evolved as an ethos over the years, but I think a lot of people were building that way anyway, and I just sort of figured out what they were doing and kind of said, hey, I've noticed I look at decks that are built like this, and this is a thing they all have in common. And so I was just really half of what I did was pointing out what people were doing already, I would say. So I think yeah. it resonates with a lot of people because a lot of people kind of had that same inclination. For me, it's always kind of set like the idea of 75% or whatever has always kind of felt to me like leaning more on the side of playing a 
not necessarily like a fair deck, like a mono straight up just generic fair, but like more fair than unfair, more fair than busted. Like a, a deck that'll let you play two hours, but still end, you know? Like, as opposed to, I'm going to kill you on turn three, and then that's just going to be the end of our commander day. <laughs> well, the the way you break parity and magic is by doing something unfair. Right. It's not, you give yourself an advantage more than you give others a disadvantage, maybe. But I think, like, the best way to break parity is steal their creatures. Hmm. Like, I really like to do that. <laughs> steal them outright, like uh, Act of Treason? Control magic? Yeah. Well, yeah, but when you bribery someone, right, like... You're sitting down with someone you don't know. You bribery them. You see their whole deck. So you see what they're about. And when you take their best creature, you're going to take something they can deal with, right? So if they're playing the pre-con, the cat pre-con, and you take Miri, then you got Miri, and they, their deck can deal with that. But if they're someone that's playing something like an Eldrazi or, you know, Consecrated Sphinx or something like that, their deck can deal with that too. So you're not going to introduce anything to the table the table isn't ready for. I, I tend to like to steal people's creatures as a way to just, like, bribery is a bell that says introduce the best creature that player can deal with to the game <laughs> so it doesn't matter what their deck is like it's it's a variable flexible spell that has a power level that's based on what their deck is and also when i was 15 i read the art of war by sun Tzu, and he has a passage <laughs> where he's like one bushel of my enemy's grain is worth 20 bushels of my grain i was like yes I get it. You got to steal their creatures. So yeah, I think uh, I think bribing somebody is twenty times better than casting your own consecrated sphinx. Yeah, and you're using their deck against them, so it's all fair. There's no unfair advantage there. It's great. I'm not the jerk that brought an emercool to the table. I'm the jerk that brought a bribery to the table, <laughs> and then they waste their resources dealing with their own creature. And then I equip it with a helm of the host. <laughs> That's dirty. <laughs> I don't think there is a bad target for Helm of the Host. I haven't found a creature I don't want to put Helm of the Host on. Dude, that yeah. card is so, so good. It's just so much fun to play. Dumb things happen every time you do. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with spitting out an extra version of whatever random crap you're sitting on the table. Even a 1-1, one -one, just having another 1-1 one -one every turn. There's nothing wrong with that. It's free. Finance tip, go on a site like uh, MTG Price or Goldfish or MTG Stocks or whatever that like tracks the, the, the graph of the card's price over time. Look at the, yeah. the shape of a card like Panharmonicon and then go look at the shape of Helm of the Host and see at what point we are in Helm of the Host's inevitable price graph. It's going to look a lot like the shape of Panharmonicon's graph. So if you're trying to buy cards at the bottom... Start looking at stuff like that. Dude, yeah, last year at GPLA, I was like, you know what? This is the first and only time I'm going to do this. But I went out and bought like 10 or something Helm of the Host because like Dominaria had just kind of started to sink out. And I was like, I know I'm going to want this card. I'm just going to do it now rather than pay twice as much in a year or whatever. Because that card is just stupid and is never not going to be stupid. Yeah. I think uh, for people who don't care about finance, if I could give people one finance tip, and the, the Brainstorm Brewery flavor of finance anyway is how does the game become more affordable for someone who doesn't want to buy at the wrong time and sell at the wrong time and end up paying 700 bucks every three months? Uh, how do you make the game affordable? And I would say your instincts as a builder are not that unique that the stuff you buy is going to be stuff only you buy. Right. I think if you say, oh, Tesa, oh my God, Grave Pact, oh, wow. Tesa's really good with Worm Coil Engine, and you just start listening. Other people are going to have the same ideas. 
Yeah, like your first thought is going to be everybody's first thought. I mean, not necessarily, but for the most part, I think enough people are going to be in agreement with you. So when you go buy that worm coil engine, why not buy two? Because when worm coil engine inevitably goes up from all the other Tesa builders saying, oh, man, I'm excited about this. They're going to be excited about Grave Pact and, you know, worm coil and uh, all the other stuff that goes like skull clamp, you know. So if you bought a skull clamp for like three bucks and then you see it's seven this week, you're like, ah, why did I only buy one? I don't know. Why did you only buy one? If you'd bought two, you'd have a free skull clamp after you sold the other one. Yeah. Do you think skull clamp is a 75% card? Yeah. I hate that card. <laughs> it's just like every time I play it, it just gets killed on sight and I like never get any value. 75% doesn't mean bad cards. It just means you are not being antisocial. <laughs> Like, I think one of the lessons of Skull Clamp is don't play it when it's in your hand just because it's in your hand. Yeah, don't play a turn one Skull Clamp. Yeah, like, don't do not do that. <laughs> that is painting a target. Yeah, like, think about it for a second. It only costs one. You can play it later. It'll be okay. It took me way too long to learn how to do that. <laughs> well, that's just part of learning how to play with other people. And uh, some stuff you could get away with when there's one opponent, you can't get away with when there are three because the odds that someone's got some removal uh, just goes way up. Yeah, and then somebody is like personally offended by a skull clamp because they've seen it in action before, and so they're afraid of it. Against one opponent, maybe it's going to happen, maybe it's not, but against three opponents, someone has that experience. <laughs> yeah, I've learned right the hard way from allowing a skull clamp to sit on the board, and so now when I see a skull clamp, I might use my removal. Yeah. <laughs> also play more removal. Yes, definitely. Even spot removal, single card removal, yeah, you're down compared to the rest of the table, but sometimes something is really bothering you more than anything else, and you just got to take it out. It's like, there's nothing wrong with having a Mortify or a, an Assassin's Trophy or something in your deck, because sometimes you just need to get rid of that one thing, and it's sitting there, and it's like, uh, just kill it. Just, you will feel better. <laughs> you will just feel kill better. It. Or Control Magic, or an Acquire, or a Captivating Crew. Captivating Crew is a great card. Yeah, Captivating Crew. You get rid of that and when you see it too. Red's good at threatening, but also Red is good at making sure that you send their corpse back in a box rather than give them back. <laughs> a right? Like It's like, oh, oh you'd like your creature back? Well, just let me strap it into this goblin bombardment and then... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, here, let me send it right back to you. Kapoo! <laughs> That is such an insult to have a goblin bombardment out and then cast Insurrection, steal your opponent's creatures, and then just hit them for one with like an Avenger of Zendikar. It's or any number of fling effect. <laughs> or hey, you know, you want it back? Let me just strap it to this Ashna's altar here and you'll get it back. <laughs> <laughs> but is Insurrection a 75% card? Yeah. It is? Yeah. Because Insurrection only wins the game when there's a big intractable board state that like Insurrection is just, it ends games. I don't want to. I don't want to play a two-hour game. I really don't. And insurrection, you're not playing that on turn four. And if you do play it on turn four, you got one creature and swung with it. Like insurrection ends games that need to end, mm. and <laughs> never ends the game too early. Everybody has to have enough creatures to kill everybody. I mean, I guess that's also the same argument for cyclonic rift. Well, cyclonic rift doesn't end the game. Yeah. If you kick a cyclonic rift and then swing at everybody because they lost all their blockers, good. But if you kick a Cyclonic Rift and everyone goes back to the Stone Age yeah. uh, and you don't win for another four turns, <laughs> it just annoys people. People don't like Cyclonic Rift because in a game someone kicked it and then swung at them when they didn't have blockers. 
people hate Cyclonic Rift because someone kicked a Cyclonic Rift and then they just like lost all their stuff and then the guy went, all right, pass turn. <laughs> and then the game took 25 minutes longer than it would have typically. That's why people hate Cyclonic Rift. That's why I don't like Armageddon <laughs> for the same reason. But Rift, just like Armageddon, is a card that can be used any number of different ways. You can Rift one creature. I've done that before just to keep somebody from getting one-shotted. Like, it's a thing, you know? Yeah. It's like when you rift their creature that's like been through the breach or something. Yeah. And then you're like, ah, take that, Mr. Cheating on Mana. <laughs> I guess. I mean, because like, yeah, there's been like a, a back and forth on my uh, feed lately about like upheaval and uh, upheaval being banned, but like Cyclonic Rift not being banned. Upheaval and, gets their lands. Yeah. Upheaval gets your land. So it just makes everybody miserable except for the combo player who wins. Cyclonic Rift just means that somebody's going to come and if they're doing it right, they're going to end the game. And it's like, okay, fine. You ended the game, I guess. Now we can shuffle up and start over. I'm coming around to that idea that it's okay to have these really just irritating cards that end the game because, I mean, someone's got to win eventually. And uh, Gavin told me that it's okay for there to be good cards, right? Like, it's okay for there to be just really strong cards that exist that just win the game just because, like, look, if you don't end the game, what are you going to do? You can't sit there and just make tokens forever. And I like good cards that need their help versus good cards that need my help. Because there's no amount of cards they can play that I can throw out a Paradox engine and then, all right, thanks for playing that. You made my Paradox engine better. But with Insurrection, I need their help. I need them to have played some stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Stuff big enough to kill them. So, like, they participated in it. It wasn't them watching you have a really big turn. So I, I feel like that's, a, a, even though you are just ending the game usually on the spot, it's a less antisocial card than, say, Craterhoof, which I don't even have a problem with. I mean, if you're doing Craterhoof right, that'll end the game too. Exactly. Insurrection's just a red Craterhoof. With more style. Yeah, but, like, their stuff matters too versus, like, I mean, yeah, Insurrection's great if you just take all their blockers and you had enough to kill them anyway, but a robust game ends with an Insurrection, but, like, a one-sided game doesn't. As long as you're not sitting there and just dirtling through your deck, then I'm okay with it. Like, don't just sit there and, like, flip your deck over and do your cycle through your combo 800 times without a win. Show me that you can end the game, and then we can end the game and play again. What about combos? If you're not running tutors, you're not going to get them every single game. I don't like tutors because I feel like a lot of the time they are a second copy of a combo piece. Combos are fine. A lot of decks win through combos, and... um Two-card combos are fine a lot of the time, but three-card combos are, like, super fine. Like, I, I have zero problem with a three-card combo. It's easy to disrupt. It's easy to see coming. They can take out one piece of it. Like, you got to do some work to assemble it. Like, I, I feel like no one feels helpless when you assemble a three-card combo. Right? right. No one feels like, there's nothing we could have done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my personal preference is I, I like to have three or four card combos just because when you build it, you feel like you accomplished something because you had to keep all these pieces alive. You had to do this thing and build this whole friggin' Rube Goldberg to make it actually work. And when it works, you feel really good about it. And everybody else is like, well, your deck did the thing it was supposed to do. Yay. And they don't really feel terrible about it because... It took a long time, but as opposed to just, okay, well, I guess I tutor for Kiki-Jiki and I tutor for, like, um, Pestermite. And it's like, okay, well, I guess I win. It's like, okay, that, that was, <laughs> congratulations, yay. That's why I like Kiki Conscripts, because the Conscripts isn't worthless. Well, yeah, because Conscripts, again, is like Insurrection, right? Like, if you don't have creatures, it's not going to really do a ton. Yeah. Or, like, 
Kiki Resto and then you're going to get real cute. I don't know. Kiki Resto is a pretty common combination. And all those red-white decks that everybody loves to play. I was thinking Naya when you're playing with actual cards. Sure, sure. And uh, so that was a component of my original uh, deck. Like I was, I came up in a meta that was not 75% at all. And it was actually a contest to see who could win by turn five, six, seven, because if you got to turn eight, it, somebody's going to win. And if it's not you, then you've lost the game. Right. And uh, my original Marath deck was super comboy and it had, you know, all of those combos. And it was, it was just bad. It, like it wasn't that it was bad. It was just like, how many times am I going to play this way? That was at about the time, same time as your article came out on 75% theory. Oh, the article? The article, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I stopped reading all things on the web after that article because I had reached the pinnacle. <laughs> Who's the beatdown? Jason Old is the beatdown. He's beat down all other content. Everybody else stop writing. Well, I, I appreciate hearing that that resonated with you. I have a tendency to get fed up with stuff I'm doing and not do it again. Like I, I godoed for Helm of the Host one time and then I won with it. My friend's like, you feel good? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like I hate my, right. I hate a lot of my Simic decks because I feel like they're just too, I don't know if they're too good or too efficient or too linear. I, I don't know. I just don't like, I feel embarrassed playing with them. You already said it was a Simic deck. I like doing Simic-y stuff. Uh, one of our patrons uh, also is deeply, deeply angry at Simic decks just because it's always like, hey, look, you get a ton of cards and a ton of counters and you win. Congratulations. Yay. But I'll be honest, it's okay to have just one deck that's like dumb, easy way to play. Like yeah. it's fine to have a, a deck that's just easy to ramp big fatty creatures that draws a ton of cards and does the thing because sometimes it's just fun to play magic that way. This is just one of my soapbox things I've just been building up for a few years. I'm like, look, man, I'm tired of people just hating on Simic because it's easy mode. Yeah, that's fine. It is easy mode. But sometimes you just want to play easy mode. Not every game has to be Dark Souls. It's okay. So you said it's okay to have just one deck like that? Ah, crap. Or you can be like me and just be the king of all Timmies and literally all my decks are easy <laughs> mode or terrible Vorthos decks. And that's fine. I mean, I got a lot, I got a lot of Simic decks and I, I'm not sure I like any of them. I've been working on like a Simic theme deck for a good five years now. Someday it'll actually be done enough for me to play. But uh, in the meantime, it's just kind of in pieces looking at me, waiting for me to <laughs> coil that Oracle out. I think I might need to uh, to build Rashmi. I think Rashmi might be the kind of Simic deck that I don't hate. That's because it, it's got a cool trick. Yeah, it's got like just neat ability, and it forces you to build around this kind of very different way of thinking about Simic. But for me, I just want to build like a Thrasios deck, or not Thrasios, but uh, Tatiova. Like, just don't do it. Let don't me just have it. stupid fun. <laughs> you're going to take a five minute turn, and you're not going to win, and you're just going to be so mad. <laughs> you really are because the whole table's like did you win you're like no nah, i'm probably just gonna draw 11 cards play seven <laughs> extra lands and pass like that i i hate my tatiova deck i love it because i'm like oh i love playing all these lands Ugh, but like i have as much fun goldfishing it it's actually less embarrassing to goldfish it alone <laughs> than it is to play it in front of people be like did you win no i'll win in three more turns probably if i draw my one win condition because <laughs> i'm running 48 basics yeah <laughs> That's my Titania deck. But at least Titania deck, the whole point is to run basic, so it's fun times. The problem with Simic is that all the decks have been done. They're all basically the same. I just really want to play Simic Skyfall or somewhere, anywhere. 
I, I just want to have a big, dumb, stupid thing with Shroud that flies. See, I built a Mimeoplasm deck that is not a combo deck. Everybody thinks it is, and I'm like, no, no, trust me, it's not combo. It's basically just big creatures. You should build a Mimeoplasm deck. I was planning on building a Rafik deck. Let me tell you how well that's been going. Oh, dear oh, lord. Oh, yeah, I, I named the Kill on Sight commander. I called that the, the Rafik problem. <laughs> you see, we both groaned when you said that. Yeah, because I just want to build a mono fair exalted deck. Everybody's like, ah, oh, Rafik, kill you. Oh, yeah, oh. that's the problem. You can't, like, you could build a 75% Rafik deck, but don't bother because nobody is, no one's going to take you seriously. Yeah, why? They're just going to kill you. And when you say it like, oh, it's just it's a fun deck, like, just don't do it because they're just going to treat you like you're the 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 most tuned possible most terrible Rafik deck, the one that gave them the PTSD <laughs> that, that, that makes them like so afraid of Rafik. They're going to treat you that way. And if they, you're with a group that trusts you when you say, oh, it's just a 75% deck. If your group trusts you, then you don't need to build 75% anyway. You can just build a play group appropriate Rafik deck for people who know you. So that's why I say you could build 75% Rafik, but don't bother. I think there are a lot of Rafiki commanders out there where it's like, oh, you could build this fun, but like, who cares? People are just going to... No, it's it's a zombie tribal Nekusar deck, but people are just going to smash you. So like, <laughs> Yeah, that's why I'm going to change my uh, Bant deck to being Janara instead, because a 3-3 three, three flyer that just adds a couple of counters, nobody cares. Whatever. Well, you need, that's why secret commanders exist, because you put the Janara in the command zone and then you windmill that Rafik later. That's exactly the point. Oh, God. Rafik's going to be in the deck. He's just not going to be the boss of the deck. And that way, if you don't summon him after, like, you know, not every game, people aren't going to get mad at you. But once in a while, Rafik comes out and does a cool thing, and you're like, yay, it did the thing. You can get your, you scratch your Rafik itch, and everybody else doesn't hate you forever. Or at least that's the theory. (laughs) I liked doing Banty stuff in uh, Standard and Extended. And I think that's, I kind of took that, mentality into commander but i'm not i'm not sure that's where i want to be anymore so i'm sort of having like an identity crisis like i was on a podcast this week and someone's like what's your favorite guild and i was like i don't know anymore yeah right because i'm so excited to build tesa and i'm so excited about my xantia deck that is almost done that like i can throw together these simic decks so easily because i bought 25 copies of every simic card i like i was like boop there we go (laughs) dj from brainstorm brewery went on Twitter and said he had a, uh, or actually I think he just DM me. He's like, I have Japanese foil pier and toothy and I'm going to oh send it God. to you. And I was like, you knew I would buy that. And you didn't even put it on Twitter. Just said, yeah. <laughs> and I bought it and I built the deck and, uh, I want to build a pier and toothy deck really badly. So if you're so big on 75%, why don't you just build Boros decks all the time? 75% doesn't mean terrible. <laughs> You know what? Firesong and Sunspeaker is actually like the Boros deck everybody always said they wanted. Yeah. It's not that popular. It should be because it makes Burn playable in EDH, first of all. Plus, it's a Boros deck that doesn't rely on combat. Yeah. Plus, you can do all kind of really insane stuff like, oh, I just gained life when I played a Blasphemous Act. Stuff like that. Like, that's amazing. Oh, and I've seen that. It's fantastic. I need to build that deck. I've been sitting on it for a long time, just being like, I should put this together. Okay, so the 75% ethos is not something that sucks. It's not something 
that is hard to play or slow to play or anything like that. Sure, sure. You're saying it's an interactive deck, right? Because it relies on the other people having cards that you want, that you want to use, that you want to steal. Sometimes. Um, I just yeah. think you are not going to get there by weakening your best deck. I think if you impose some deck building restrictions and you have to come up with substitutes for some of the obvious stuff, you'll find you had more fun creating the deck and it plays just as well if you rely on synergy rather than raw power. A lot of decks are just good stuff decks and I think it tribal lends itself to 75% so well because tribal is inherently synergy based. So I find if you learn the lessons from building tribal and try to build that in, in other ways, I, I think you'll just end up there. I think a lot of decks just end up 75% just because of how the way you decided to build it like non-traditionally. I think some commanders just sort of top out at 75% because you mm. were just playing interactive magic that's not... You give yourself enough of an advantage that you don't have to give them too much of a disadvantage. Or you give them yeah. enough of a disadvantage that you don't have to give yourself too much of an advantage. I don't know. It's It just ends up 75%. Just I've had a lot of people send me a deck and they're like, is this 75%? I'm like, I can't conceive of a Grenzo Warden deck that isn't. So, <laughs> <laughs> How about this? Before we wrap up this segment, what would you say is like your most 75% deck that you have? Like, What is the most, like, if you were going to pick one deck as an example... Or like one commander is an example of what would kind of like an iconic, just generic looking deck look like, if you can even do a thing. Probably my Nath of the Guilt Leaf, because it's got really strong stuff in there. What's that creature you sack a creature to make them discard two cards? Yeah, yeah. It's got that in there. So you sack a token, they discard two, you get two tokens, you you, you make them discard their all their hands. But also Nath is kind of slow and grindy, and you get a little bit of heat making someone discard every turn. So you can use that politically and, <laughs> and nail one person, or you can be like, I'll roll a die. Um, it's a really strong elf tribal deck, and it's got stuff that, you know, like no mercy that makes it worse to attack you. And um, you can just dome somebody with uh, whatever the elf is that deals them a damage for each elf you control when you play at the black green one. It's in my elf deck. I don't remember what it was. Yeah, I don't remember card names. I just remember the look on people's faces <laughs> when I dome them from 25. <laughs> <laughs> and it can be slow and it can be fast. It's kind of inconsistent and I kind of like it that way. Like it, it's had really explosive starts because it's an elf deck and it's had really bad starts because it's an elf deck. It takes a lot of work to get there and uh, you can have really good outcomes from uh, Waste Knot or you can whiff. And you really don't have that many ways to, to take their stuff in the deck, but I I think that isn't the most 75% thing to do necessarily. It's just probably my favorite thing to do, and it just happens to. Well, you know, you kind of scale to the power level of their deck by taking their best creature. But I think that Nath deck is probably the most 75%. Like, if I gave somebody that deck and be like, this is what we're about, I think they might get it just thumbing through. I would love to see that list, because it sounds like the sort of deck that I would love to play. A former co-host of this podcast, actually, uh, he created a Nath deck, and so you can go up to deck stats and take a look at that. I will. It's a really good deck. It's kind of cruel. It's not overpowering. Like, if you know how it's setting up, and it will set up, even if you try to disable parts of it, you can attempt to stop it, you can slow it down, and, and still defeat it. But man, if you ignore it because you think it's not a threat, it's uh, it's bad news. Because you're playing fair elves over there. Fair. 
You're playing elves, at least. <laughs> but people don't like their hands being destroyed, and Nath is all about destroying those hands. Yeah. yeah. When you sack all those elves to uh, Ashnod's altar and mind twist somebody. <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not nice at all. <laughs> it's beautiful. Now, it's not nice to play a zombie with uh, cards that make you not have a maximum hand size. All right, so listeners, if you have any thoughts about the 75% ethos or 75% theory and the article that Jason wrote about it, then make sure uh, to tweet at us and you'll know how to contact Jason at the end of the show because he'll tell us all of the different ways and all the different shows he's on too. We couldn't have a show with you on, Jason, and not talk about MTG Finance even just a little bit. I'm prepared for that. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that a set has just come out. Uh, that's true. That's a thing. And, um, if you know anything about how I do finance, I think the most important stuff to look at is not the new cards. It's the cards that are affected by the new cards. So mm. people ask me, Hey, what's uh, Vanifar going to cost in a couple weeks? I'm like, that's not an important question to ask me. Important co- uh, question to ask me is what is going to go in the Vanifar deck and therefore go up in price. So, yeah. A lot of that stuff popped, all the obvious stuff popped, like, uh, you know, as soon as that card got spoiled, I was like, hey, buy your intruder alarms now. And sure enough, that went to like 20 for a while. Thorn by staff, yeah. you know. So that's the stuff to look at. While people are thinking about how to build a deck, and you can do this too, right? If you see something like Taysa and you're like, oh, here's how I build that. Everything you're thinking is what everybody else is thinking. So just go buy that stuff as soon as the card gets spoiled and buy two copies so when the card triples in price, basically you get two free cards when you sell the the inflated version because you bought, well, instead of thought, you know? Yeah. How do you judge the right time to sell, though? Um, That's the hard part and uh, comes with experience. But selling to hype, that's the easiest way to make money, right? Like when everyone's fighting over the stuff, sell, uh, sell into it. And um, if stuff goes up enough that you can buy list it, that's the best way to to recover your money so like not having the infrastructure of a tcg player store or an ebay account or like trying to sell it locally i think the the three easiest ways to trade are to get the the value out of the card that went up is trade it locally or take it to your lgs and see what they'll give you for it or buy list to some place like card kingdom which uh that's probably your best bet so say you buy a three dollar skull clamp this week it's seven you take it to uh, Card Kingdom, they're paying like five fifty plus a 20% buy-in or uh, trade-in bonus. All of a sudden, you got like 6 bucks to put toward a new card when you bought that Skull Clamp from them last week for 3 bucks. So mm. that kind of stuff, that gets you a lot of store credit real fast. And uh, Card Kingdom, it's a store I like to deal with because they sometimes charge a little more than TCG Player, but sometimes they don't. And they have a very generous buy list and they have a trade-in bonus. So the fact that they will give you more in store credit than they will in cash is just perfect for someone like your listeners who just want to play EDH. You'll go and you'll um, you'll see all the stuff that you think is going to go in the, the Tesa deck and you'll buy two copies of it or four copies or whatever. And then you'll have a bunch of extra copies of the stuff and you can either trade that or trade it into somewhere like Card Kingdom and all of a sudden you're playing magic for free if you you know hit on that kind of stuff because really your instincts as a builder are good you're thinking what other people are thinking and you're just uh you're not waiting for two or three weeks for the stuff to be on edh rec for you to see what everyone else is doing you're thinking about what you as a builder want to do so i recommend people buy stuff on the day just like really be thinking the day cards are spoiled how you would want to build that deck and buy your singles quicker 
than people who are just like, I'll get around to it. Because, like, yeah, you're not going to have your taste of that day. So you're like, well, I can't build the deck, so why should I start buying cards? Mm. Don't wait till you play the, the pre-release and then trade for a Tesa and then go home and then, then start writing the deck list out and buying the cards. Because if you do that, you pay too much. Yeah. So I would be brewing the day your commanders are spoiled or at least buying stuff you know is going to be in the deck. Even if you don't end up using it, then you've got two copies to sell instead of one or two copies to send to Card Kingdom. Just not buying and selling at the wrong time. Uh, don't keep stuff until rotation. Um, I don't have to tell commander players this as much because they're not like standard players usually also. Standard players tend to keep stuff way too long and then they like just dump it at rotation. Uh, I would sell your stuff a month before rotation to make sure you get the uh, the most for it. And even if by sell, I mean sending it to Card Kingdom or, or somewhere like that. Good point. So you recommend buying the day that a card is spoiled that you want to use, right? That it's previewed. What do you do if it's popping so quickly now? Like I've looked at this and by the time I'm able to say, you know, buy a bunch of cards on my lunch break, everything has popped already. How do you find those niche cards that haven't popped yet, but might? EDH rec data uh, is what I use. When I write my articles, I use EDH rec data to sort of say, hey, it's not as obvious. Because people who don't play Commander necessarily are looking at Vanifar and going, oh, I bet Thornbite Staff is good here. And they're just buying Thornbite Staffs because they know they're going to go up in price. And the stuff that's not obvious to people who don't play Commander is going to go up later more organically. So we're never going to stop the people that are just like, oh, I'm just going to go buy um, Intruder Alarm. You can't stop that. But instead of getting upset about it, they're going to miss so much stuff because they don't understand the format as well as you. The stuff that, that goes up later, more slowly, more organically, and doesn't go to a big peak and then crash. Because like Intruder Alarm's not going to maintain 30 bucks or whatever. Like it'll it'll end up halfway between its peak price and what it was before it went up. Cause that's, that's what always happens. You know, if it starts at eight and goes to 20, it'll end up at around 14 or something like that. That's just, that's how it goes. So don't buy it 25 and then be mad. Um, just wait if you miss the boat because the prices will go back down eventually. Yeah. But on the other stuff, you sometimes have two or three weeks. Cause like I said, EDH players have a tendency to wait until they have the Tesa in hand, then write the deck out, then throw it on deck stats, then buy the singles. So you can see what people are forecasting. They're going to buy later. And then EDH rec will collate all that data. And you're like, wow, it's not obvious to people who don't play commander, but it is obvious to me. And it's obvious to all the people that, 73% of whom put it in their list. So I, th I think EDH rec data has been really good for identifying this stuff. That's that, that's my entire MTG price series is using EDH rec data. So the stuff that you want to uh, to build with later, maybe buy two copies of that because it, it will go up eventually. Yeah. And there are a lot of factors like reprint risk, how many times it's been reprinted, what sets it was in, like how hard it is to get. Like something like Blade of Selves is going to be more rare than something that was printed in like Zendikar and then a core set and then an EDH uh, precon. So you got to think about stuff like that too. But for the most part, your instincts are really good because the stuff you want to build with is the stuff others want to build with too. You had said that there are, you, you had did some analysis on like the most used cards from Innistrad, I think, because some Innistrad card had just popped at the point you were on the, on the show. And so you went deep into analysis in the, using EDH Rec, where it's like used in 3,000 decks, and the only card that is used, like the next most used card than that one is used in like 2,900, and that price is still really low. And so you were recommending purchases based on that kind of analysis. 
Now, you've been doing this finance for a while. Did that kind of analysis come naturally to you, or did you have to teach yourself all over again? I'm not quite sure how I'm asking how you know how to use EDHRI. I think it was a series of small epiphanies. Like, I had to see what of my predictions panned out and, and what didn't. Um, so I, I think it was really just I've been refining the method of using EDHREC. It was just something I, um, when I moved from quiet speculation to MTG price full time, I think it was like three or four years ago. I was writing for MTG price and quiet spec and then MTG price wanted me to be full time and then compensated me accordingly. So I came over full time and I didn't want to just write another finance article. I wanted to do something nobody else was doing, you know, because I, I, yeah. I was going to get fewer eyeballs on it moving from a, a site like quiet speculation where, you know, I had a certain amount of traffic. So I wanted to write about something that nobody else was writing about to sort of make it worth going to MTG price to see my articles. And I, I think I've done that. So I started just looking at EDH rec. I was even looking at like tapped out, like what people were trading for on tapped out. And like some of that stuff didn't really pan out. So I worked it until it made it easier on myself. I did stuff that was, you know, just easier. All the stuff was in one place. I was just looking at what I predicted was going to go up slower based on, uh, you know, what people who actually play these formats are, are buying. So if I sound like I know what I'm talking about, I, I would say it's because I made a lot of mistakes and taught myself. And you've, you've spent actual years doing this. Yeah, like a couple hours a day sometimes. And then I write a, a weekly article about it. And I've Maybe written if, I've, if it's been four years, I've written 200 articles about using EDH rec data. So that's you'll add up some hours doing that <laughs> and you'll uh, you'll figure it out. Right. Like uh, you do anything, you know, for four hours at a time, 200 times and you'll uh, you'll you'll come to some conclusions that are correct and <laughs> you'll refine a methodology. And I, I feel like that's kind of kind of what I've done. I've just taught myself maybe i basically and it sounds dumb to say i invented it i'm sure there's so many other people doing it but like i didn't read how anybody else had done it i just sort of made my own method yeah what do you think shivam is this something that we should spend uh, a little bit of time doing and then maybe four or five years from now we can be uh, mtg finance whizzes i have no sensibility for that like i'm the world's <laughs> worst person to talk to when it comes to like i'm like the example you use for a bad person with finance. Oh, like buying and selling at the wrong time? Oh, yeah. I have no no sensation for it. Well, I think if, if everybody who spends zero hours a week thinking about this kind of stuff, they spent 30 minutes a week thinking about it, I think they would probably spend half as much money on Magic as they do now. Net, you mean. They'd be reaping the benefits of selling cards at the right time. Yeah. Last year, I think, was the first year in my entire history of playing Magic that I actively went and tried to sell cards and I came away with like 500 bucks or something. And I was like, holy crap. I, I didn't realize that this collectible card game that I pay a jillion dollars for can actually make money. So like, well, you didn't make money. You got a, a jillion, whatever a jillion minus 500 is. Yeah. Right. Like exactly. You subsidized your hobby. I'm, I'm that type of guy who's like, I'm wizard's favorite customer. I buy things come into the black hole and never leave. <laughs> well, Wizards doesn't care what you do after you buy the cards. Right. So I just I just buy them and I'm good. The The thing I find interesting about finance is not necessarily how to make money or how to sell money or anything. It's more like, how can I buy the cards that I want while they are still cheap? Like right now is a good time to go buy Shocklands because they're probably never going to be as cheap as they are right when the set comes out. 
You know, that's like, right. And like, that's the sort of tips that I've picked up from listening to a lot of MTG finance stuff is not necessarily like how to spec on things or whatever, but just look, if you're going to be a player and you're going to want to buy cards and if you're playing EDH, you want to have like a set of staples or whatever, figure out what time of the year is going to be best to buy those things. Cause there's always like a season kind of for when EDH staples are like depressed or at least from the new set, like right after it comes out, the cards that the standard guys don't want that you do perfect time to go buy them yep it's all it's all cyclical and that's how we make so many predictions because you know it's it's happened three or four times before in the time we've been yeah. paying attention yeah in the time certainly i've been looking at these things we as a community had like two weeks after the release of a commander set to purchase cards and now it's just it's a much tighter cycle what about the command zone effect right when josh played athreos and uh, the shadowborn apostles deck with athreos that was a deck that had been circulating for a couple of years since Athreos had been out, basically. We had uh, Dean uh, Guti on, on our show. And then after he played it, Shadowborn Apostles are now 5 $6 cards. Do you watch game nights and then buy based on that? Do you recommend listeners do that? To the extent where it's almost worth being a patron to get it 24 hours early. Mm. Yeah. But if you're not hardcore into finance, don't worry about it. Like, maybe you'll maybe something will go up but like were you really desperate to play that before you saw josh play it or did you just like oh that's a thing i saw a thing monkey see monkey do i need it and oh i can't buy it the cards are five bucks stupid speculators when in reality it was just people watching commands on that went and bought the stuff yeah yeah um i personally do but that's because like i make money doing this if you don't care about making money i wouldn't worry about the command zone effect it doesn't happen every episode when it does happen, it's one or two cards. And if it was anything you were really desperate to play, you would have bought the stuff already anyway. So don't feel bad. You're not going to be able to buy every card for cheap. You know, some you're going to miss some stuff. It happens to everybody. But you just got to learn to let go of feeling like you were cheated somehow by the, the prices going up. Because in reality, there's so much stuff out there. I don't think the command zone is any different than like what the coverage the top eights of the star city events and mm. you know, the, the GPs and stuff like that has been doing to constructed players the whole time. Like something will get yeah. played on camera and then food chain based on EDH demand was a like 14, $15 card. And then it got played and somewhat top eighted like a classic with that food chain deck after it had been a deck for four years. And then, yeah. you know, food chain went to 50 hmm. and it wasn't any, it wasn't the command zone effect. It was, it was legacy that did it and like nobody plays legacy at all total and they certainly don't play that stupid food chain griffins deck when they do <laughs> like it was like one person played it but everyone's like i gotta go buy four copies that's that's a deck so that kind of stuff happens just with magic cards someone sees it on camera they're like i'm gonna go buy four copies and make that and one of the related things is the fact that commander itself has just become so popular over the past yeah. two three years just like leaps and bounds bigger than when I started playing like five, six years ago, just the number of eyeballs themselves passively looking and saying, hey, you know what? That was kind of a cool SRAM deck or whatever. Let me just go pick up a SRAM or two. The fact that that number has gone from like three or four to like three or four thousand means that the prices are just going to naturally go up because just people. Supply is the same. Yeah. The stuff that was printed four years ago, they didn't print more of it, you know, so uh, mm. it's just with more competition. But I, I think 
high prices on stuff that gets played a lot isn't a bad thing because you kind of don't want to pay 25 bucks for a card that's going to be three dollars next week <laughs> that's right if you are going to send it to card kingdom get that uh 20 traded bonus you'd kind of like to end up with like uh 19 store credit versus 350 so the fact that there's a lot of competition you know in the market for for the, the singles and there's you know lots of people vying for the stuff and there's lots of people playing the cards means there's high demand. You're not going to sit on a card that you bought because there's going to be someone waiting in line to buy that from you means that your cards, even if you don't see them as an investment, you're not just throwing money away. There's, there's so many hobbies where you can't sell your stuff used for any value at all. That's right. You know, we're really lucky that you can if you're like, ah, you know what? I spent 25 bucks on that. I don't think I want it. You can throw it up on eBay for 25. You can't do that in other hobbies. Nobody's buying used rock climbing harnesses or, <laughs> you know. I'm just thinking of that meme of the magic player being like, oh, man, I want every card to cost like nothing for me to buy. But I also want to sell it for $800. <laughs> well, you can have both if you pay attention. Uh, that's what Brainstorm Brewery focuses on is just telling people to uh, when the right time to buy and the right time to sell is. So, like, maybe you're not going to buy for three and sell for 800 but maybe you'll buy for four and sell for seven versus buying for seven and selling for four, which both things could easily happen with the same card if you do things in the wrong order. You know, we're magic players. We understand sequencing matters. <laughs> Incidentally, magic players, if you want to get that uh, KCI for your uh, artifact deck, now's a great time to do so. Yes, now is a great time to do that. Yep, and just like that, a thousand Brea players cried out in joy. I was <laughs> one of them, not gonna lie. <laughs> Oh, man. So, Jason, we've had you on now uh, for nearly an hour and a half. Uh, by the time the listeners hear this, it might be cut down to just a little bit over an hour because of some of our starts and whatnot. But we'll we'll have to have you on again to talk about your Zancha deck. I've seen one of these in action, and I'd love to hear your take on it. It's uh, Mindslaver Tribal. Oh, my God, what? <laughs> oh, God. Okay, and... maybe we do need to hear about this. <laughs> No, no. That's that's such a tease for your listeners, though. That oh, you can't just leave yeah. it like that, man. What do you mean, we, Mind we Slaver can. Tribal? We, we can. We will talk about Mind Slaver Tribal maybe around Valentine's Day. Because, you know, what makes people love you more than Mind Slaver Eternal? Roses are red, violets are blue. <laughs> Sack all your creatures, I Mind Slavered you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I absolutely hate seeing a Mind Slaver out when, uh, when I've got a sack outlet. It's just... It's not well, going to. If you end don't well. have a sack outlet, I'm going to give you one. <laughs> oh, listen to that. So, listeners, we'll have Jason on within. We'll have to do this within a month, just so that people don't die waiting to hear what this is. And in the meantime, we'll get your list up online and and share that too. Listeners, you rock for hanging out with us this long. And Jason, thank you for coming on the show and for being like it's super late for you and cold. Those don't have anything to do with the other. <laughs> See, even though I live in Michigan, I um we went to this company um that sells these structures called houses, and then we went inside the house, and it's actually warmer inside than outside. So, are you staying up this late in order to make sure the fire doesn't go out? <laughs> right, when I'm throwing bulk in it and just huddling over for warmth. <laughs>
All right. Well, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this show. We love having Jason on. Uh, this is his 10th appearance on the show. And as you heard, we're going to have an 11th appearance not too long from now. So, Woo! Jason, if you're willing to, we can make this a regular thing, too. Who knows? I think at 10, it kind of is a regular thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's been on basically uh, one out of every 16 shows. So, Jeez. <laughs> when you put I think it like I've been that. on this cast more than Ryan was on Brainstorm Brewery. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, Uh, okay. So listeners, if you like what you just heard, maybe even including that, please consider donating a bucket show so that we can keep on improving. You can go to patreon.com slash commander and MTG or commander and MTG.com slash donations or go fund me, search for commander and, and use the one with the C logo, not our former co-host Sean's smiling face. And special thanks to our Patroni, who already show their support. You heard three of them earlier today. Without their continued support, we couldn't bring this show to you. So please, join their community. And we're very grateful to everyone who does. Jason, how can people get hold of you on the internet? Well, if they go to Twitter and find me at Jason E. Alt, that's a, a good place to see the list of all the other things. Um, if you yeah. wanted to read my articles on CoolStuffInc.com, that's a thing that happens on Thursdays. Also on Thursdays, my article goes live on mtgprice.com for the general public. It's paywalled for 48 hours to give the the uh, the paying customers a, a bit of a jump on everybody else. But then it's a, it's a free-for-all on Thursday. So it's uh, free to read every single Thursday on MTG Price. I'm the content manager on edhrec.com. And uh, maybe I'll uh, go back on the EDH Reccast podcast very soon. Uh, I enjoyed having a hand in starting that. And... Uh, Boy, is that all I do? That's it, man. Uh, Brainstorm Brewery yeah, Podcast. Um, I'm doing a podcast with uh, John Dunning at Orzov Dunn of um, the Tin Street Hooligans and like all the stuff he does. We're doing a podcast uh, called Director's Cut where we talk about directors and their filmographies. I'm very excited about that. Otherwise, I wouldn't You're mention kidding. it on a Magic Podcast. No. No, it's great. We are doing Steven Soderbergh next. That'll be an interesting one. And uh, Money Draft is a podcast I do sometimes, so there's one of those coming out very soon. Uh, other than that, that's it. That's all I do, really. <laughs> just a few things, Jason. I just I like this community, and I like the fact that um, this game is big enough that people who don't work for Wizards can be part of it. Uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's really pretty cool. It's always great to have you on, man. It, it really is. I mean, considering that you're doing all that, taking the time out to visit with us is uh, even more special. Thank you. Oh, no, it was really my pleasure. I'm I'm really glad that uh, you had me on the cast. All right. You can reach us by going to our website, commanderandmtg.com. Our email is cast at commanderandmtg.com. You can find us on all of the social medias by searching for Commander and MTG Podcast. This episode was edited by David Mitchell. Our theme song was created for the podcast by Nate Burgess. Our logo was created for the podcast by Mr. Picto with assistance from Kelly DeLuca. You can find more art from Mr. Picto by going to mrpicto.co.uk. Special thanks to tech whizzes Jesse Thompson and Graham Frank and to Justin for the server space. And special thanks to Mike Condon, editor of the Brothers War podcast for the guitar version of our theme song. We're also making a few changes behind the scenes. We want to thank Tyler Webb for helping us change hosting services for the podcast. Tyler and his friend Chris host the Unformatted Review Show. 
It's an unfiltered, rambling look at a different movie every week where the only rule is there are no rules. I've listened to many of the episodes myself, and they're two good friends talking about movies. But be warned, they aren't family-friendly, so you probably don't want to play them around children or in stores like you do Commander in. Commander at MTG Podcast is unofficial fan content permitted under the fan content policy. It has not been approved or endorsed by Wizards. Portions of the materials used are property of Wizards of the Coast. Copyright Wizards of the Coast, LLC. So Jason, uh, as you know, having uh, the, this being your 10th appearance on the show, we'd like to ask our guests to take us out with something uh, pithy and or witty. Come back and listen to me when I do my 11. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That is a good one. <laughs>